As I indicated some time ago, I have decided to uh, teach and study and preach through the book of James in a series of sermons. It's something that I have felt drawn to for a little while and um, look forward to studying this and preparing to teach uh, in this way. Studying a book of the Bible is sort of, in some ways, like preparing for a trip. One of the good ways to prepare yourself for a trip is to study the destination that you're about to um, explore or tour. For example, um, if and when I, we prepare for a trip, it is very helpful to um, understand some of the major routes that go through the city or the area in which you are traveling to. It is also very helpful to understand some of the uh, cultural things such as food and uh, some of the historical um, things about a certain destination and area that you're traveling to. And properly preparing for a trip often brings a certain familiarity with, with the location and with the area and with the culture, routes and landmarks and that sort of thing. Um, that can be very helpful when you actually get to your destination. In today's world, that of course involves research, um, online probably, um, nailing down points of interest, watching videos and taking virtual tours and that sort of thing. And proper preparation, trip preparation, prepares you and helps you to know what to look for at a given destination and also how to find it once you're actually at your destination. That's sort of like studying a book of the Bible. One of the goals that I have for today is to give an introduction to the study of the book of James and perhaps for today, I will not be talking about much more than James chapter 1, verse 1, and giving you an um, overview of the book, a, um, um, an idea of some of the things that we will study. That way you can prepare and research on your own so that when we get to those destinations, you can um, be familiar or recognize some of the landmarks and some of the points of interest. So that's some of the groundwork and the goals for uh, the book um, study and for the sermon in particular today. I've entitled the sermon, A Call to Maturity. I think overall, as I see the book of James, that would be a title that I would give the book. Um, it's a basic and simple call to spiritual maturity. Our world needs spiritual maturity. And even more specifically, our church here at Weavertown needs spiritual maturity. Our families need spiritual maturity. And many times, when we're looking for spiritual maturity, we just need to look in the mirror. Because I, we, need spiritual maturity individually. You know, growing up spiritually, growing older spiritually, is not the same as growing up spiritually. Just like in the physical sense, growing older does not necessarily indicate that we are growing up. And my prayer and my goal for this series of sermons and for myself and for our family and for we as a church, that we would find that spiritual maturity, that motivation, that energy that comes from the, the Word of God and the Holy Spirit that brings the Bible alive and causes us to to grow and to develop what needs to be developed in our lives. And that is really sort of the basic foundation of spiritual maturity, growing up, not necessarily growing older in our spiritual walk. <clears throat> Who was James? Who wrote the book of James? Well, James seems to be sort of a common or a popular name in that time. 
There are obviously several prominent men who shared the name James in Jesus' time. There was James, the son of Zebedee, who was also a brother of John, the revelator and the man who was beloved of Jesus, especially um, John's own choice of words there. And this particular James, James the son of Zebedee, was one of the disciples of Jesus. He was on the inner circle along with his brother John and Peter. And this particular James, James the son of Zebedee, was killed, martyred by Herod, approximately 44 A.D., which was not too long after the church was born, and maybe not completely sure, but almost certainly before the book of James was written. Then there was also James, the son of Alphaeus, who is also called James the Less in a corresponding passage of Scripture. He was also one of the disciples. As far as we know, James the Less or James the son of Alphaeus is completely obscure There is very little, next to nothing, that we know about this man other than that he was one of the disciples. He appears in the list, in the Gospels, when the lists are given. It is almost unilaterally accepted that the book of James, which we have before us here today in our study, was written by James, the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus, the oldest biological son of Joseph and Mary, Many Bible scholars believe that James, who wrote the book of James, was the half-brother of Jesus. Very likely would have placed him next in age to Jesus in the order of the family. Jesus being the oldest, being the son of God born to a virgin Mary when they were a spouse to Joseph. Um, Mary conceived of the Holy Spirit, the the Bible tells us. So he was, as supposed, the son of Joseph, but was actually the son of God, the Bible tells us. Now, it is quite interesting to me to see how James introduces himself in James chapter 1, verse 1. He does not say James, the brother of Jesus, but he says, James, a servant of God. And the word servant there could just as well be translated slave, a slave of God, a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is very much what we see of James in in the Bible. He considered himself a servant, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible refers to the brothers and sisters of Jesus at least twice in Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, and also Mark 6, verse 3. There are a list of siblings that are listed as siblings of Jesus, In Matthew 13, is not this the carpenter's son, they said? Is not his mother called Mary and his brethren James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? The list is almost exactly the same in chapter 6, verse, in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, it includes at the end, and they were offended at him because of what he was doing in their hometown and proclaiming himself to be the son of God when they believed that he was just, just another guy from Nazareth. And his brothers were, and sisters were in their midst. And I'd like to also call attention to the fact that the name Judas or Judah is given there, which was also a common name in that time. And it is thought by many Bible scholars that the person who wrote the book of Jude was also in another half-brother of Jesus. <clears throat> In Galatians chapter 1, verse 19, Paul writing to the Galatians and calls attention to the fact that James was a brother of Jesus Christ. James and his brothers and sisters, as we know, did not believe in the deity and the divinity of Jesus during his earthly ministry. And yet it seems, according to Acts chapter 1, verse 14, After the resurrection now, in the upper room, after Jesus ascended, it sounds as if Mary and his siblings, his brethren, 
very possibly James included, were in the upper room with the disciples. Somewhere along the line, probably no more than several months before Jesus' death, they are listed as being offended or opposed or critical or skeptical of Jesus and his ministry. But at this time, they are in the upper room, according to Acts chapter 1, verse 14. What affected this change from unbelief to faith? Think of it. How would it have been to have been the brother, the sibling of Jesus Christ? To have been the brother next in age in the family. Most of us here today have siblings. And think of yourself as being especially close to the sibling that's either just younger or just older than you. The connection that you have. That might be similar to the connection that James had with Jesus. Eating many, many, many meals around the same table. Doing some of the same things that siblings do. Sleeping in the same bed. Working in the same workshop. Interacting just like two brothers who are next in age do. Think of the weekly trips to synagogue that James and Jesus took together. Think of the trips to Jerusalem, to the feasts that James and Jesus no doubt took together over the 30 plus years in their lives. Alexander White writes, I wish I had the learning and the genius to let you see all the things that must have gone on in Joseph and Mary's house. The family perplexities about Jesus, the family reasonings and disputes about him, the intoxicating hopes at one time over him, and their fears and sinking of heart at, other, at another time. Think out for yourselves those years, the likes of which never came to any other family on the face of the earth. And that's an end of quote. So James had these amazing experiences. And up until only several months before Jesus' death, he was skeptical, doubtful, critical, perhaps even openly rejecting the divinity of Jesus. What affected this change? Well, in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7, it appears that one of the first appearances that Jesus made to people after his resurrection was to James. You can easily see and feel that common bond, that attachment that Jesus and James had one for another. And Jesus, as a caring older brother, attending to the details, he makes sure that he appears in his glorified body, in his resurrected form, to James. I find that touching and even sort of tender as I think of that. Jesus appeared to James and then the apostles. In Acts chapter 114, as I mentioned, James is with the disciples in the upper room. In Acts chapter 12, verse 17, when Peter is released from prison, Peter gives instruction to tell James that he has been released, that he has been miraculously released. Tell James. Make sure that James knows about it. In Galatians 1, verse 19, I mentioned that earlier, Paul mentions James as being instrumental in his transition from unbelief to faith. And his Think of, yeah, Paul's transition from unbelief to faith. And he cites there in Galatians chapter 1, he identifies James as being one of the ones who reached out to him and how he spent time with James and that key and um, vulnerable time of his life in Jerusalem. Also in Galatians chapter 2 verse 9, Paul calls James a pillar in the church. 
In Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council, James is noticeably in leadership. He is an, an influential and authoritative leader. In Acts chapter 21, verse 18 and 19, Paul sends greetings and a special love offering from the, from the converts, and as a result of his missionary travels, he collects a generous love offering for James and the church in Jerusalem. <clears throat> Josephus records and the Martyr's Mirror as well, records that James was stoned to death at approximately A.D. 62. The record or the story records that James' dying words were the same words that Jesus spoke when he was on the cross, and he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What kind of man was James? He must have been a very deeply spiritual man. The Bible and history records him as a man of great compassion. A man who was willing to understand and listen and hear. A man who was influential, who had knowledge of Scripture, also had knowledge of nature. He was a man who had knowledge of, of, uh, of, of relationships and how relationships should work. He had knowledge of commitment and how commitment looks and structure in a Christian's um, life and practice. He is frequently in history called James the Just. And I think at least part of that is the fact that James had very high standards for himself and for others. And I, for one, believe that James' high principles and personal standards were noticeably evident by the people that lived around him and the people who read his writings and the people who followed and listened to his preaching and his teaching. James the just, James the righteous. The Bible depicts James as a natural leader. I can understand that. An influential man who was able to listen to all sides. We can see that in Acts chapter 15. He did his homework, paid attention to details, he was able to communicate to the, to the division and the conflict that was felt there at that time and place. He was able to give credibility to the various viewpoints and yet bring things together in a way that was satisfactory and brought peace and joy to the group. That takes a special kind of skill. I believe that this is one of James's a result of his high principles and his high standards and his, his belief, a picture of what he believed should be church and should be church leadership. In Acts chapter 21, when Paul returned to Jerusalem from his missionary journey, we see James doing the same thing. In this case, he was able to exercise diplomacy, a very diplomatic approach, and um, undermining or undercutting some of the criticism that was intended or directed toward Paul and his efforts. And James suggested or asked Paul to perform a Jewish vow in the temple as a way of undoing some of the, the, the heat or the criticism or the skepticism that was directed to Paul. He sought to pacify some of the strong feelings that existed in the church. We need to understand now, while we can look at that and sort of wonder about that story sometimes, I, I certainly have done that. We need to keep in mind that this was a time of transition. And James was a church leader during a very difficult time in the history of the church. There was a lot of moving pieces and parts and changes. And James is depicted in the book of Acts as a person who is stable, who didn't flinch, pendulum swing from one side or the other. He was able to understand the different viewpoints, like I mentioned before. The different thinking, different ways of thinking that were afloat at that time. He was able to wade through those differences. And he was also made an intentional effort to minimize those differences and the uh, impact that they had on the group. Tradition tells us that James was a man of prayer. 
The book of James indicates that he was a man who had a deep relationship with the Lord. The Martyr's Mirror tells us that James, as at the time of his death, was a man who spent so much time in prayer on his knees that his knees were calloused. In fact, it says they were calloused like a camel. His knees were, he spent so much time in prayer and on his knees before the Lord that they said his knees had a permanent bend to them as a result of that. And it's relatively easy to see in the book of James, at least from my point of view, he had a very deep and a committed relationship with Jesus Christ, the Word of God that became flesh and dwelt among us. And James beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. To whom was the book of James written? To whom was it written? And I see I missed a point here on the overhead. Chapter 1, verse 1 tells us that it was written to the 12 tribes. The 12 tribes that were scattered. The Greek word scattered here is the word diaspora, which simply means dispersed. The Jewish world at that time was scattered and dispersed over the known world. It had been that way for hundreds of years, approximately 500 years, since Assyria, the Assyrian armies had moved in and destroyed the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, and had taken intentional effort to scatter them all over the known world as a way of minimizing the possibility of them ever returning and starting some sort of coup to the Assyrian nation, which was not um, something that was um, unknown or unthought of by those political leaders at that time. Sometime later, we know the story how the Babylonians came and also carried the southern kingdom away. They did not scatter them quite like the Assyrians did, but they carried them to Babylon, which is where many of them spent the rest of their lives and never really migrated back to, to Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 2, there are 16 nationalities that were represented there in the day of Pentecost, the Feast of Pentecost, which was one of the, the feasts where the Jewish men were invited or required to present themselves to the Lord. And there were 16 nationalities, which is indicative of the, uh, the extent to which the Jewish nation had been scattered at that time. Additionally, it records in Acts chapter 8 that as a result of the persecution, it caused the church in Jerusalem to scatter. And so that was also part of the scattering, the diaspora that James talks about. And really, that was a way, it was God's way of bringing the gospel to the entire world, sowing the seeds of the gospel, and that resulted in a great harvest of souls extending all the way to our ancestors, believe it or not. James was a Christian Jew, and he writes to other Christian Jews. At least 11 times in the book of James, he records, he calls his readers brethren. Three times he calls them my beloved brethren. James frequently quotes the Old let me back up. He only quotes the, New the Old Testament five times where there are direct quotes in the book of James. But throughout the book, numerous times, you can see clear allusions to the Old Testament. And it is, it is clear to see and generally um, written in a way that it assumes that the readers understand the stories or understand the Old Testament picture. Why was it written? Why was the book of James written? The epistles written by Paul and others were usually written for a specific pur purpose. It was to talk to or warn or confront or praise 
or encourage or in some way call attention to something that was lacking in the group, to the group that was written. And as you read the book of James, you can see that these Jewish Christians were having some problems in their lives, and it was a general problem throughout their time and their place. For one thing, they were going through some definite testings, and I've talked about that just a bit, and you can see that in the book of Acts. This was a time of change and transition, and those are tough times to wade through for any group, for any group of believers, even for an extended, a larger group of believers. There's cultural things that are going on, changes in the world and that sort of thing, and it, it causes us to um, need to figure out a way to, to go through that. And so that was going on. It's very clear to see from the book of James that they were facing temptations to sin, That's an age-old problem, isn't it? I can certainly attest to that. Temptations to sin. There were temptations to cater to the well-to-do among them. Well-to-do people who were taking advantage and uh, in some way exploiting the poor in their midst. There were unhealthy competitions going on in James's circle for um, recognition and for honor and prestigious positions and that sort of thing. And furthermore, there were significant issues with gossip and the use of one's tongue, the improper use of one's tongue in their midst. And that only further divided them on the different viewpoints and the different ways of looking at things and the different ways of processing what was going on around them. How many of us are familiar with that? Creating divisions and fragmenting as a result of the use of one's tongue. Worldliness was another issue that was causing division, causing some of them to stray, causing them to keep their focus or get their focus away from things that actually mattered. James calls them back to the Word. It is thought by many that this is the first New Testament book that was written, preceding any of the Gospels or any other New Testament writing. James may have been the very first. Think with me for just a moment. <clears throat> we can probably see some of these tendencies in our own lives, can't we? When there's a time of change that comes in our lives, we tend to pendulum swing the other direction. And many of these Jews had come out of hyper-legalism, that was imposed on them through the pressures of the Pharisees. It seemed that at that time nobody could really stand up to the Pharisees. The Sadducees sort of did. The Herodians sort of did. But generally, the Pharisees put extreme pressure, hyper-legalism, on these people. And so what they did, they tended to do the same things that we do, and they pendulum swung into a relationship that had no structure, and no discipline as a, as a reaction to what they came out of. And James sort of seems to be a call back to structure and discipline, a healthy structure and discipline, a proper healthy structure and discipline. James is calling them back to that. He gives 54 commands, 54 commands in these 108 verses. And most of these commands are the, in the imperative sense. For those of you who have ever done English diagramming, you know what I mean when I say the imperative sense? The you is the subject. And James, in simple terms, says, stop sinning. Treat everybody similar with the same standards. He calls them to... Um, to stop causing divisions in their midst. He tells them to pray, to submit to God, to humble yourselves. And in all of those commands, you are the subject. It's written in the imperative tense. These are not suggestions. They are commands. 
imperatives for that time and for our day as well. It is so interesting to me, when I think of it, that this could have been or may have been the first New Testament book written. James had the Old Testament as his backing, and he had the Sermon on the Mount and the teachings of Jesus in general. And James may have been present at the Sermon on the Mount. I can't prove that, but he makes many allusions to the Sermon on the Mount. For instance... In James chapter 1, verse 2, he says, My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into, temp- into diverse temptations. Sort of corresponds with Matthew chapter 5, verses 10, and 12, 10 to 12. In James chapter 1, verse 4, Let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Corresponds with Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. James chapter 1, verse 5, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given unto him. Corresponds with Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 to 12, and so on. <clears throat> These are just some of them. There may be as many as 15 allusions to the Sermon on the Mount in this book before us here today. It's also interesting to note that James is an illustrator. He is a man who has knowledge, who understands the subject that he's talking about. And further, he uses illustrations from nature. He uses illustrations from creation to make a point. He uses things that were understood and familiar to the people at that time, such as the Stephanus that he talks about in James chapter 1, verse 12 there, where he talks about the crown of life. That's talking about the reward, the Olympic wreath that was used in that time and still is today and all these um, uh, nearly 2,000 years later, the Olympic wreath, the Stephanus that was placed on the winner. And he also uses uh, illustrations such as the royal law in chapter 2. It's the only place that I know of where it's called the royal law. But James had these illustrative and provocative um, ways of illustrating, making a point. In chapter 3, he talks about bits and bridles and horses and controlling a horse as a way of uh, illustration of controlling one's speech and one's own tongue. And there's more. James is practical and pretty easy to understand. He keeps it moving. He doesn't spend a lot of time digging in like some of the other New Testament writers do. But he kind of gives his point and he moves on. The words of this book are encouraging and motivational. The book of James is a book that is meant to help and not to harm. More than any other reason, in my opinion, this book is a call to spiritual maturity. And I find that so challenging as I think of it. A call to spiritual maturity. It is one of the greatest needs of our day. It's one of the greatest needs of the church and James' time. These Christians seem to have stagnated. They were not necessarily growing up, even though they were growing older in their faith, and in their walk with the Lord. The word perfect is used numerous times in the book, at least five times throughout the book of James. And the word perfect in Greek means mature or complete. It has the idea, the the word picture with the word perfect as it's used in the Greek has the idea of fulfilling its purpose. In Hebrews chapter 5 verse 14 you have the phrase used of full age, and it's the same Greek word. It has the idea of, of doing what you're doing in your stage of life. It does not necessarily mean sinless. It does not necessarily mean never having any faults of any kind. It simply means that you're progressing, and you're doing all that is expected or needed for the stage of life that you're in. 
has the idea of, of progressing and growing up. It is also very fitting that the book of James immediately follows the book of Hebrews. In my opinion, that is, uh, yeah, that's just fine. It's sort of a sequel of sorts, even though it was written before the book of Hebrews. The same theme of spiritual maturity is also found in the book of Hebrews, written perhaps even to the same group of people. And in uh, chapter 5, verse 14 of Hebrews, which I just referred to, it's the same Greek word. As you know, one of the major themes of the book of Hebrews is also spiritual perfection. The word perfect is used 14 times in the book of Hebrews. And again, in that same way, the idea of being mature and growing up in our walk with the Lord. How we live. James follows, the book of James follows in order with that same theme. And exhorts and teaches, instructs readers and people to this day how to build on that perfect salvation and allow it to become into a thing of maturity where we grow up in our walk with the Lord. Spiritual maturity is still one of our greatest needs. We still have members who are suffering for one reason or another. We still have members who talk one way, profess one thing, but live something completely different, don't we? And there are still Christians, aren't there, who cannot control their tongue. Sometimes we just need to look in the mirror. If you look at the problems that James deals with in this chapter, these chapters, and in this book, in these 108 verses, you're going to see that these issues... James writes, are characteristics that are present in all of our lives. They're present in mine. And James warns us about looking in the mirror and walking away unchanged. That's possible, isn't it, to do that? There are five marks that I'm giving to you today as marks of spiritually mature people. In James chapter 1, we see that a spiritually mature person is patient in testing. One of the marks of a spiritually mature person is how they respond to difficulty in their life. Another mark of a spiritually mature person is that they practice the truth. They actually do what is transparent. They do truth. They do not live in deception. They stay away from deception. They do not profess one thing and do another. It's a mark of a spiritually mature person, a person who practices the truth. Thirdly, they have control over the tongue. They have power over their tongue. That doesn't come as a result of one's own effort. It comes as a result of something that has transformed one's, a person from the inside. They are peacemakers, not troublemakers. James talks about that, and we'll get to that when, we, when the time comes. They are prayerful in their difficulties. And in James chapter 5, he lists about three or four or five, depending how you count, difficulties that they faced and difficulties that we face. And our response or our attitude in relation to the difficulties we face is so important to how we work through it. And how we come out at the other end. I cannot overemphasize that. <clears throat> how can we get the most out of this study? It seems to me that as James writes this letter, he's thinking about Psalm 15. Psalm 15 parallels the book of James. Psalm 15 has five verses, and each verse, James, five, James has five chapters, and each of these verses parallel some of the same thoughts that are present in the five chapters. Maybe it's a complete accident, but it seems James's knowledge of the Old Testament is at least somewhat evident even in times like this. His familiarity with the Old Testament and with Psalm 15 
he brings those same ideas into fruition. This psalm is about ethics and righteousness and ethics that comes as a result of righteousness. How many times has John you instructed us? It comes in that order. Righteousness happens within and then outwardly comes ethics. Not the other way around. We are not righteous because we're ethical. But it's the other way around. We do what we are, the Bible teaches us. And this psalm brings that same effect into effect. God redeems us, and that brings us to the question, how then should I live? How does one live who has been redeemed? The question is asked of the psalmist. Who's going to abide in your tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy place? And then he goes on and he answers these questions. And he does so in a simple and forthright way. I, I find it very difficult to argue with any point. It's not complex. It's not some difficult and hard to figure out formula. He's not speaking in, in parables. He's not talking in algebra or something that takes a lot of complexity and, and figuring out where you have to have some secret formula to understand how and who dwells in God's holy place. But he just goes right on, and I'm going to name some of these things. He says, who is, in order to dwell in God's house, we need to be blameless or spotless. That does not mean that we are sinless. It just means that everything is taken care of up to date. There is not some leftover thing that is still outstanding in our account. He does what is right, the psalm tells us. Our right walk with God, again, gives evidence of what's going on inside. We, are, we, are, we do not walk rightly, outwardly, unless something has transpired inside that gives us the ability to do that. He speaks the truth. There's clear evidence there about how a person speaks in relation to his experience inwardly. Notice how he talks about slander and backbiting. It means that we don't go around and spy on someone in order to use the information as we have some sort of eagerness to find some kind of scandal or something like that. Create a scandal. He does no wrong to his neighbor, he says. Reproach. Being disreputable. Or making it seem as though what we're doing is in some way or another um, not credible. I don't know how exactly how to work all of this sometimes. But the psalmist and the book of James gives us clear instructions about how we need to stay away from people that pull us backward. How do we go about that? How do we create distance and create healthy boundaries from people that pull us in a negative direction? How is that done? How does that look? Psalm 1 indicates that, and various other psalms, and so does the book of James. Fear the Lord, he says. Fear the Lord. He that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. He that putteth out his money to usury. It has the idea of exploiting people that are less fortunate than us. <clears throat> this psalm, I think, is a template for all of us, for all Christians, and maybe especially for us at this time as we study the book of James. I invite you to read this psalm often. I invite you to not only read it, but apply the message to your life and live this message. This psalm is not written, and the book of James is not just written to inform our heads, but it's written to inform us on how we should live. And my prayer is that God would do this in my life, and that as I read and study and preach and teach from the book of James, that it would impact me in that same way, that there would not be leftover things that I could be pushed and motivated into a deeper relationship with the Lord. How should we study this book? Well, I have four things here as I close. First of all, we need to be born again. You know, that's just a foundational thing about any kind of Bible study. And some of you are much more familiar with this 
than I am, but before you were a Christian, did the Bible make any sense to you? Not really. It, you, you just had a, a way of reading the Bible that it somehow or another didn't apply to you. But when the Word of God and Jesus Christ became alive in your heart, the Spirit of God caused this thing to become alive. And you, couldn't, you just wanted to read. You just wanted to study. You wanted to be taught. You wanted an understanding of, of the Bible. And sometimes those of us who grew up never thinking that we wouldn't be Christians sort of don't have that sharpness, right? And my prayer is that all of us together, because of the work of God in our lives, the Spirit of God and the Word of God coming together, it creates life. And I don't have the time hardly to show you John chapter 3 and other places in Scripture where it talks about how when the Spirit of God and the Word of God get together, there's conception. Sort of like the coming together of, a, of your physical parents created life and you became alive. In that same way, the new birth takes place when the Spirit of God and the Word of God come together. They are the two components that create conception and a new birth. Jesus calls it the new birth to to Nicodemus and others. Secondly, we need to study this book by honestly examining ourselves in the mirror of the Word. Perhaps you've heard of the person who had a mirror in his room and he stood in front of the mirror and didn't like what he saw and so he broke the mirror. James talks about that and he says, encourages us that as we study the book, as we study the Bible, that we need to be realistic about what we're seeing in the mirror. It's not the mirror's fault, all right? We need to honestly examine ourselves in the mirror of the Word. And then thirdly, we need to be willing to obey. No matter the cost, James chapter 1, verse 22 tells us that we must be doers and not hearers only. It is so easy to attend a church service it's so easy to attend the Bible study and discuss what we've heard, but it does nothing to change us. And my prayer is for me and for all of us that as we wade through this Bible, the words of Scripture, that it would impact our lives, not only inform our heads, but it would change how we live and how we do. We need to be prepared for extra trials and testings of our commitments. That's just as normal as could be. When you make a commitment, you can, you can rest assured that commitment is going to be challenged. That, ch that commitment is going to be tested. And if you're not tested in your commitment, it's probably not a real commitment. For instance, I recently read a story of a man who realized that he needed development in the area of patience. And so he set out to find that improvement for his life. Well, like usual, when you start praying for patience, it doesn't go very long until you're, cha you're challenged and that you can apply that to any other uh, issue in your life. And the very day, that very day he made the prayer, he was to fly to another city on a, as part of a work assignment or a business trip. Well, guess what? His flight was canceled. They had another flight going to the same city an hour later, but he spent the next 60 minutes stewing and upset about the nature of his travel. And he suddenly realized that instead of working on patience, he was actually continuing his impatience, wearing the rut just a little deeper in his mind and heart. And there may come a time in your study of the Bible, maybe even in this particular study, in this series of sermons, where you just want to quit. It's not possible. I can't do it. I challenge you not to get to that point. Because it's possible that when you feel like quitting, when you feel like bailing out, that's the very time that God is about to do something wonderful in your life. And it's usually when Satan turns on the heat that we feel that. And we need to remember that when Satan is turning on the heat, we need to remember that God actually has his hand on the thermostat. Age and maturity are not the same thing. I've tried to make that point again and again. The very fact that you have been a Christian for 20 or 30 or 50 years does not necessarily make you a spiritual giant. 
it does not necessarily mean that you are spiritually mature. Age and maturity. Age, spiritual age and spiritual maturity are not the same thing. Mature Christians are happy Christians, useful Christians, and Christians who encourage others, and Christians who build the local church. And as we study the book of James together, it is my prayer that, that these areas would be strengthened, that we would learn how to do it, that we would become spiritually mature together, not for our sake, but for God's sake. I invite you, if you're able, to kneel together for a prayer. Lord God, we come to you in the name of Jesus. We thank you for your great love to us. Thank you for your patience with us and for your word and how it speaks to us and invites us and encourages us and motivates us to become more like you. I pray, Lord, that as we enter this study of the book of James, that each of our lives and each of our hearts would be impacted, not for our sake, but for your sake, and because of your great plan and your purpose for our lives, that we would understand it, that we would apply it and allow it to impact our lives so that those around us could see your grace and see your truth. Again, we thank you, Father, for all your gifts to us. We pray that you would continue to uh, grow us up in the faith and bring things into our lives that would call us to a, a higher level of faith and a higher level of understanding and realization of your love for us. Thank you again for Jesus Christ and for your word, the Holy Spirit that moves in our lives and shapes us and molds us into the image of Jesus Christ. We pray that as we go from here that we would be that image uh, to the people around us. We pray through Christ. Amen.